No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. We opened our 10-year anniversary season with a virtual tri-flip of stories from across the country. Give a listen to hear about a picture-perfect day at Vacation Bible School gone wrong, a revealing trip down death road to the Amazon, and an evolving mother-daughter relationship. We also asked our authors to present their answer to this question. What are three objects that the you from 10 years ago would be surprised to know hold such value for you now? And I'm very excited to get to hear Chris's three things and for everyone that doesn't know him to get to know him a little better. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so Kelly Jean, I actually am going to take your bar and lower it even lower. Um, so my three objects right here, can you, oh, and I'm upside down, so perfect. Um, so I also, uh, as Kelly Jean mentioned, I am a trainer at Mark Fisher Fitness. So in 2012, I did Snatched for the very first time where I was not a member yet, and I was um, they named someone Snatcher of the Week and you get a free t-shirt. So I had a free t-shirt. I sleep in it to this day and I've been employed there since 2013. Oh. And it's been the reason that's kept me basically afloat um, for the entire pandemic because we quickly pivoted to teach classes over Zoom and I've been doing that since the beginning. So I put my MFF t-shirt. This is a wooden box um, that we bought as a dog bed for our previous dog, Veda, who has since passed. Um, and it now holds all of my recipes. Speaking of turning into people, turning into my mother who is here tonight, um, it now holds all of my recipes that I get to cook in my kitchen because we are home. My husband and I are homeowners. So I have my very own kitchen where I get to cook and I keep all my recipes in this wooden box. Um, and then the last thing is a copy of the book, The Help, um, that my husband's uh, mother gave me before she passed because she loved the book so much and wanted me to have it. So she gave me a copy of the book. So those are the three, um, my three things in my circle here. Mm. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. It's funny, uh, your homebody class is actually where I learned that you can spotlight two people simultaneously now on Zoom. So we get to continue one of our favorite Know You Tell It traditions, which is having, since this is gonna be the first time you've heard the story you wrote for this show, performed in front of an audience by your story partner, Chris is gonna to have to stay in the hot seat to experience the story being performed. And it's gonna be performed tonight by Gabriella Martineau. So if you wanna bring Gabby on in. So we are gonna hear first up to kick off our 10 year anniversary season. Here is Water, Watermelon Sugar, written by Chris Crothers and read for us by Gabby Martineau. Watermelon Sugar. I grew up in Hamilton, Ohio, which is about halfway between Cincinnati and Dayton in a family of four with my dad and mom. They divorced when I was 13 and my younger brother, who I'm five years his senior. My dad worked for the schools and would often show up in the middle of lunch, which was so embarrassing. My friends would all yell, hi, Mark, and my face would turn as bright red as the sauce on my rectangular pizza. Oh, God, that pizza was good, though. 
Ooh, my mom was a legal assistant who wore pumps. This was the 80s and 90s and a business suit every day. We were somewhere on the upper side of middle class. We were lucky enough to be able to buy new school clothes each year, which was one of my favorite things to do. I loved clothes, still do. And after our mall haul, I would come back home to plan that very important first day of school look. One not so fond memory I have is from the seventh grade when guess overalls were all the rave. They weren't cheap and as much convincing as I tried to do, my mom wouldn't go for them. I ended up getting a knockoff brand and thought, well, since you wear one strap down, no one will see the logo. I was wrong, very wrong. I got so made fun of that I walked to the office and called my parents to come take me home. Kids can be such dicks at that age. My brother and I were both very involved in a variety of activities. I tried a few traditional sports and I was pretty good. But once I learned I could make money working at the concession stand at the ball field in town, I traded in my baseball glove for a popcorn scoop. I did figure skate for many years and I played tennis, but most of my activities were theater, music, and dance. Both of my parents had creative sides as well. My mom and our neighbor Shirley had a shop in our town that sold every homemade holiday decoration made from wood that you can possibly imagine. My dad would cut them and then my mom and Shirley would paint them. We're talking Easter eggs, Christmas trees, pilgrims, you get the idea. I'd often take the scraps and turn them into my own little art projects. In fact, I paint, once painted a, a scrap royal blue, added eyes and transformed it into a whale. I gave it to my grandmother as a Christmas present and it still hangs on my tree to this day. My dad, an electrician by trade, was also a singer. He was also a member of the Elks Club and sang in their barbershop quartet. They sang the national anthem at a Cincinnati Reds game once and it was so exciting. It was like my dad was a celebrity. We were in the church choir together and one of my favorite memories is driving home in our whale of a blue Buick and singing islands in the stream with him. I always got to sing Dolly's part. We lived in an idyllic neighborhood. In fact, my dad and stepmom still lived there, but in a different home. The homes were all different styles, Tudors, ranch, colonial, you name it. Many of these homes, ours included, were photographed for the local newspaper. The neighborhood was, and also still is, a Halloween destination. My dad told me that they had 500 kids this year. That's a lot of bite-sized Snickers. Summers in our neighborhood were amazing. There were tons of kids. So once school was out for the year, it was like recess all day, every day. Along with our neighbors, we would throw a block party each summer. The dads would take care of the grills. The moms would take care of the rest, like corn on the cob, watermelon, and Rice Krispie treats. And the kids would ride bikes in the middle of the street since it was barricaded off. We'd have water balloon tosses and the night would always end with the most epic game of ghosts in the graveyard. Most weekends in the summer, we'd spend at the Elks Country Club because it had a pool. 
The days were filled with games of Marco Polo, splash contests, and deciding which treat from the concession you had to have that day. Lemonheads, Chico sticks, cowtail, these were very important decisions at a young age. Our church was only like a 10 minute drive to the Elks Club, which meant a lot of families would head there the minute service ended. We were pretty involved in our church. However, we weren't a religious family. Looking back, I think we went for social reasons. We weren't particularly close, or we were particularly close with this one family who also belonged to the Elks Club and had two daughters, Trenna and Brittany. Trenna was exactly my age, and we were involved in all the same things at church and our respective schools. Trenna's dad worked for Nabisco, so he'd always bring us boxes of Oreos, Teddy Grahams, or Wheat Thins, free snacks. Trenna and I were inseparable. We'd sit together during the service, oftentimes dropping a handful of coins into the collection plates in an effort to make as much noise as possible because we were the cool kids. Or so we thought. We would rally the other kids to play hide and seek after receptions in the fellowship hall. The fellowship hall was used for gatherings on certain Sundays for a potluck style post-service lunch for milestone events or celebrations. Families would bring a covered dish like baked beans. If it can be casseroled, a casserole, or jello with things in it that should not be in jello in the form of a bunt cake. I can still smell them all now. It was kind of like our block parties, but in church clothes. Our church also had vacation Bible school for a week each summer. If you don't know what VBS is, ours was essentially day camp at night with all the day camp activities you'd assume, music, crafts, snacks, etc then sprinkle it with religion. For some reason, I remember it having this element of the aforementioned first day of school outfit feel to me. I'd show up each evening wearing my little khaki shorts, my tucked in polo shirt, and crisp white sneakers with socks to match. The evening would start with a Bible lesson. I don't think I really took away too much. I was too busy fidgeting and doodling. I was mostly looking forward to the other activities on the evening's agenda, like music time or craft time. Music time, though, was my jam. Yes, we sang Kumbaya, my lord. And we sang Go Tell It on the Mountain. Was it Islands in the Stream? No, but I didn't care. I was making music, and making music made for a happy six-year-old Chris. To be honest, making music makes for a happy 43-year-old Chris, too. Snack time followed music time, but I'm going to skip over it for a second. I promise you will get a snack in this story. Craft time was the last activity of the night before a final prayer. Craft time definitely held its own in a music time versus craft time smackdown. Finger paints, construction paper, macaroni creations, we did it all. Looking back. I wonder if my whale ornament was inspired by a VBS Jonah and the Whale lesson. Huh. Like most six-year-olds, obviously every piece of art I made belonged in the Smithsonian. My poor parents had to have had a pile of my creations. I wonder how long they kept those things. 
All right. Are you ready for your snack? <laughs> After music time, we'd buddy up with a friend and walk hand in hand, all in a line. Yes, just like Noah's Ark down a big beige painted cinder block gray linoleum tiled hallway to the fellowship hall. Our snack time would consist of some super sugary drink, which was always a color that did not occur naturally, but damn, it was good. And who doesn't love a Kool-Aid mustache? Although me doubts it was actual Kool-Aid. We'd have some confection made by one of the women from the women's group. And one particular night, there was watermelon. Nothing, at least up until I was six, said summer like a slice of watermelon, ice cream and popsicles aside, of course. So my friends and I were showing this watermelon who's boss. And yes, of course, we'd see who could spit the seeds the furthest. Duh, we're six. We'd finish up snack time, buddy up, and mark, march back to our classroom. Obviously, my buddy was Trenna. I'm rocking out some preppy Kids R Us ensemble, and Trenna is in her perfect little sundress. We looked like we'd walked out of a Gap Kids ad. We're doing what most six-year-olds do, being silly, chatting, not paying attention to what's going on around us. To be honest, I'm probably guilty of doing that right now, too. <laughs> I can assume that whoever the kid was directly in front of us, either A, watermelon doesn't sit well with him, or B, had a stomach bug because everything that was inside of him came out. Trenna and I take our next step and the gray linoleum tile immediately transforms into a slip and slide and we go body surfing down the hallway in watermelon vomit. I'll spare you the details of texture and what it looked like, but we were covered head to toe. You've seen people get slimed on Nickelodeon? That, but pink. It's in our hair. It's on our skin. Our perfect little outfits are soaked. We're crying. We don't know what happened. All we know is we're wet and it smells. And there's a cacophony of ew, gross, disgusting from our fellow vacation Bible schoolers. Our teacher immediately grabs us, pulls us down the remainder of the hallway and out the door. The teacher grabs a hose, turns it on and showers us with freezing cold water. Our tears are combined with this ice cold water and choose your favorite word for barf. Our egos are completely deflated. Our perfect summer outfits ruined. One of the other teachers shows up with towels and new clothes for us that I can assume were in a donation bin or from a small supply for when kids have an accident. I mean, thank goodness for these clothes, but fashionable they were not. I remember pulling a way too big navy blue t-shirt over my head that smelled like my church and pulling up a pair of elastic waistband shorts that barely stayed up. I was a very skinny kid, like full toothpick legs. I remember not wanting to go back into the classroom because I was completely mortified from the extravaganza that had just occurred or because of my outfit, unclear. The rest of the night remains a complete blur. I only remember walking out the door of the church with Trenna, our heads both hanging low, 
and our parents standing together with puzzled looks on their faces. I assume they all thought we'd peed our pants. Weird that we'd both do it on the same night. As I ran towards them, they asked, what happened to your clothes? Before I could answer, our teacher, who was standing there with a plastic grocery bag filled with our wet watermelon spew-soaked clothes, recounted the whole thing. I couldn't listen. I buried my face in my mom's belly. It was a very quiet ride home that night as I didn't want to talk about any of it. Not even islands in the stream could cheer me up. But for my 13th birthday, Trenna got me a watermelon. My poor husband had, has heard this story a million times. To this day, I must meditate before enjoying anything with watermelon in it. And watermelon juice, oh, it's a hard no. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Gabby. Chris, I definitely want you to teach us the, the dealing with watermelon meditation in one of the homebody classes as our, as our cool down. What a wonderful way to, to kick off our show. I love that story swap. I actually had the honor of directing Gabby uh, to, to step into Chris's story. And uh, I wanted to bring in, before we move on to the next story, uh, Amanda Sisk, who directed the next two stories. I thought it would be fun to take a moment to learn a little bit about you and to see to see now that Chris and I have set the bar so low, see what is in your circle and these items that you know that you of 10 years ago would be surprised to see hold such value to you now. Hi, thank you. I had to let my little buddy go. He was enjoying the stories. Um, so the things that have value to me now that I would not have expected, um, and excuse my art, um, oh. Noah, my husband, bought us ukuleles. And I remember saying, this is the stupidest thing you've ever done. And now my ukulele is one of my favorite things of all time. And I can spend eight hours playing it easily. Um, the second is I just bought myself a whole bunch of paints and I haven't painted since I was in elementary school. And I am spending so much time doing that too. So these two things have brought a whole bunch of creativity into my life. And then this is, uh, I love music more than almost anything in the world. And I finally bought myself a pair of expensive, but wonderful headphones. And I can't believe I've lived this long without them. So those are my three things. Hey, thank you. And the cat that I put away when we got here. Now I know that in a future note, you tell it we can have like a ukulele moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. I'm, I'm very down. Gangsters, gangsters paradise. I'm really, really good. <laughs> Uh, because this is a tri-flip, our next story was written by Gabby, but it's actually going to be performed by Jenna. Chris will be back at the at the end to perform. Uh, but first, I'm excited to, I met Gabby very briefly. I got to see you perform in Chicago, and I'm just excited to hear, you know, this process has been so much fun getting to know you better. And so I'm excited to get to know you even better by seeing what, what I feel like it's like a talk show moment. What is in your circle? Ooh, it's like show and tell. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it is. It's, it's basically show and, show and tell. I made Why adult show and tell. 
as adults, I feel like we should have show and tell. We got to be proud of what we, I guess that's social media for you. But anyways, I digress. Here is my circle. Um, let's see if I can get the glare here. So I cheated a little bit and, and wrote on it, but um, up top here, uh, it says two gentlemen of Verona show poster. And it's a show poster from a show I was in in college. It was a Shakespeare show I was in. And I met my husband in that show. Um, he was the assistant director. I truthfully thought he was married to the director. Um, he will never let me live that down. He's like, are you kidding me? No, you know, and um, we met and, you know, rest is history. We've been married for, gosh, it's going to be four years this year. And we've, we've been together for over 10 years. So, um, okay. So the next thing is my Mickey graduation ears. Um, and they are a, just something that sits on my shelf. And I didn't think that I would love them as much as I do. And it's because I did the Disney college program uh, back at the end of my college career. I went and I did the Disney college program. I ended up staying in Florida for three years, three years. I stayed in Florida sit like after the program. Uh -huh. So these ears have been with me since I graduated the program. And at the time I was like, these are so cheesy. They have like the little tassel on them, like a graduation cap. Um, but I kept them and you know what? I am so proud of them. Every time somebody brings up these ears, I'm just so proud. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. It was a great time of my life too. So it definitely reminds me of those good times. Yeah. Um, I worked at Disney all through college and then the college program kids would kind of come and go. And it is, it's a, it is a really unique experience. That's so funny that you're doing that. It is. Oh, it's a great experience. I would recommend it to anybody. So I could go on about that. <laughs> but um, the last one is a Polaroid that I took, which is very um, funny enough. It's very, uh, it brings the story together. It's a Polaroid with me and my Bolivian grandparents that I have. Um, I took it with my little tiny, you know, Instax camera or whatever when we were there last. And since then, my grandfather has unfortunately passed, uh, passed away. Um, he passed away uh, from COVID a year ago. And so this picture is just so important to me. It's something that I took on a whim. We were just at a party and I was like, hey, let's take a picture. And it just is such a lovely picture of the two of them. And it really, it just gets me right here, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's good. Those are thank my three. You. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for sharing those. Our, our next story was uh, written by Gabby and I'll go ahead and bring Jenna on in. And we're going to hear uh, Flipping It Up, Bolivia, written by Gabriela Martineau and performed by Jenna Struble. Bolivia. Let's talk about Top Gear. If you haven't heard, Top Gear is a British television motor show that tests whether cars, both mundane and extraordinary, live up to their manufacturer's claims. The long-running show travels to locations around the world, performing extreme stunts and challenges to see what the featured cars are capable of doing. And on one particular episode of Top Gear, they take three different cars to the deep of the rainforest and attempt to drive them back to civilization. This episode is easily my favorite. And I'm sure from the title of this tale that you can guess why. Spoiler alert, it's in Bolivia. In fact, they travel along the Chilean border and end up exactly where my story begins, the North Yungas Road in Bolivia. 
When I tell people my family is from South America, Bolivia is not their first guess. They usually go with Brazil, maybe Colombia, and I always, always get Mexico every time. Bolivia is not necessarily a country that people in the U.S. tend to know a lot about, but that is why it is so very special to me. When I was a child, my grandparents would send us gifts from Bolivia for birthdays and holidays. And at the time, I would simply enjoy the fact that these gifts came from so far away. But now, these items are so precious to me. Intricately woven fabrics with red, blue, and purple accents, hand-carven wooden art, and little silver utensils with Bolivia etched into them. Each piece is, a, each gift is a piece of them, a piece of our history. The only way to feel closer would be to travel there in person. So travel to Bolivia, we did multiple times. My first ever trip to Bolivia was when I was in high school on Christmas break. I was 15 years old at the time, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, never left the country before. There were so many highlights of that first trip, but I have one that stands out. It was our journey up and over and down the mountain to hike along the Amazon River. As a young high schooler, I was already going through so many emotional up and downs at the time of the trip. It was definitely set at the heart of my adolescence. Do you remember that time? I mean, everyone's experience is different, but the one thing we can all agree on is that it was very likely tumultuous. The throes of young love, a changing body, picking fights with my parents, climbing the social ladder, making important life decisions, losing myself, finding myself, responding to any problem like my world was ending when it surely was not. I was swimming in a sea of feelings. Did I want to take this trip with my family? Yes, of course. Did I also have a sassy attitude the whole time for no particular reason? Absolutely. Bless my parents for the patience with me at that time. I still apologize to this day for the things that I said to them when I was a teenager. This trip was in particular pretty perfectly timed to occur during this phase of my young adult life in which I laughed in the face of potential danger and cried in the face of any sort of change. What a time. Speaking of danger, during the Bolivia episode of Top Gear, one of the hosts, Jeremy Clarkson, is quoted saying, that is a massive drop as he is driving along the North Yungas Road. And he was not exaggerating. The North Yungas Road or Death Road as it is lovingly referred to in many publications, is a stretch of road that we had to drive along to get to our destination, which was essentially up and over the mountain to the other side. The North Yungas Road is known as the death road for all the reasons you'd guess. Driving up or down the 43-mile switchback is extremely perilous due to fog, landslides, cascades, and cliffs that drop 2,000 feet at every turn. The road seldom gets any wider than 10 feet and many crosses stand as memorials to those who have perished there. As my dad's cousin Jorge was driving us, we would see people on the side of the road with lawn chairs precariously balanced on the edge of an actual cliff and the tiniest of tables, you might even call them TV trays. They were sat on rickety old chairs 
their leathery faces, crowned with an iconic bowler hat for women or chulo knit cap for men, showed no fear whatsoever for the dangerous drop right behind them, nor for the vehicles that would get so close to them as they passed. They chewed on coca leaves, a common practice in this area, especially with the indigenous people or Quechua. I'm sure the raw form of cocaine would indeed help one's nerves on the death road. Their tables were stocked with crosses and fresh flowers for purchase to adorn the area where a loved one may have perished. That is how common it is for people to drop to their death along this road. And there we were in an SUV with a manual transmission. I am convinced that if anyone else was driving that vehicle, the day would have ended much more gravely. There were a few times that I had to hold my breath and shut my eyes as we passed by huge cargo trucks that took over the road. Another time, a minivan was coming the other way. We were particularly in a tight area, so both cars had to literally inch their way past each other while the rocky gravel barely holding us to the road kept crumbling and falling into the cavern below ominously. Laughing in the face of danger, I was not. However, Jorge was our champion, and he knew it too. His jolly face shone with pride every time he maneuvered the vehicle out of a sticky situation. I don't know much of Jorge's story personally, but his wife Sylvia and he have always been included when we talk about our Bolivian family. Seeing as my name was almost Sylvia after my second cousin once removed, I assumed that Jorge has been with my father through more than just a dangerous winding road or two. And after a four hour drive, that would have been two without, you know, the death run bit, we did eventually make it out unscathed. And our destination was well worth the treacherous drive. My family took us on a trail that would wound right along the Amazon River. She was glorious with her roaring rapids, beautiful trickling distributaries leading us through the dense rainforest and humid foggy sections. The noises were all foreign to me, a city suburban dweller. Screeches, croaks, buzzing, even the foliage was loud as we traipsed through the damp undergrowth. Of course, my mother, who has never been a fan of heights, was thoroughly anxious as we were hiking since there were no guardrails and the trail was rather small. In fact, it was quite similar to the death road, but just a foot trail version. I found my mother's fear to be quite funny. I, I made sure she knew I was poking fun of her. This was not the first time nor the last that my teenage self attempted to make her feel small when in fact, I was just as nervous as she was the whole time. What was even more ironically humorous about the situation was that this was a typical outing for my Bolivian family. My grandmother, who we call Muti, was in slip-on sandals and socks even. I giggled as I passed Muti's short frame shuffling along. Then she stopped, turned back, grabbed my mother's hand, and gently helped my mother face her fear. A small reminder that emotions are their own language. And even though my mother can't speak Spanish, Muti knew she had needed a kind gesture. I noticed this and felt a little ashamed that I had made fun of my mother. 
One of the first lessons my grandmother taught me and one that still sticks with me. We continued through the rainforest, undeterred by the ominous clouds forming above. We were supposed to end our journey at a clearing where various species of primates would frequent. However, our trip was sadly cut short. As we entered the clearing, a few small monkeys that we had once caught sight of through the canopy were retreating. My uncle Daniel, who was our guide for the trip, wiped the rainforest steam from his large glasses and gazed above us, searching. Uncle Daniel is one of the middle brothers of four, my father's being the oldest. And despite the age difference, my father somehow still has a thick head of hair, while my uncle Daniel has been bald since I can remember. Genetics, am I right? We all gazed up into the canopy with him and asked why all the monkeys were going. He barely got two words into a sentence when the sky opened up. Sheets of rain fell like heavy buckets on our heads. We had no time to find shelter. Instead, we embraced this little detour and danced around in the rain. Old and young family alike laughed, danced, fell over a few times, and genuinely had a splendid time being silly for a moment. Silly. Not a word that a teenage drama queen wants to be associated with. I wasn't silly, I was funny, I was witty, I was cool, but I didn't like silly. Silly is synonymous with strange. And at that time, strange is not what I wanted to be. Yet I found myself throwing up my hands and cackling as the deluge soaked my strappy sandals that I had brought not for comfort, but for fashion. Muti laughed with me as we compared shoes, neither pair fit for this type of weather. I caught a glimpse of who my father used to be, still is, a family man with such an adventurous spirit. My younger brother, being on the autistic spectrum, was blissful watching everyone be as goofy as possible, something he normally has to reel in. My mother having briefly overcome her fear of heights, slipping around the trail with my grandfather, or Taita as we called him, and me. Hands raised open to the sky, voice raised to the heavens, cackling with joy. The world didn't end. I didn't fall around on the social ladder. I danced with my family in the mountains of Bolivia. That was all. Similar to those Adolescent waves of emotion, as quick as the rain came, it subsided. We made our way back to the car, soggy and happy. Right before we packed up to leave, however, Taita led us to a small fruit vendor and purchased the largest and most delicious bananas that I have ever eaten. It was a perfect end to a quite eventful day. On our way back to the homestead, we were met with the same dangers of the death road and Jorge was once again, our savior. However, I didn't feel like going back. Reflecting on the events of the day, I journeyed up and over my own mountain as well. Exploring the nuance of the Bolivian culture and the way they approach challenges was so eye-opening. The pride they have for their family, my family is so palpable. There was no Nothing uncool about enjoying the little things, about embracing your family as a part of who you are. The freedom that they gave themselves to get out there, to do things, 
the freedom to be exactly who you are without fear of embarrassment. It turns out that danger did scare me after all. And even though I had boasted to have not been afraid. After that trip, however, change didn't seem so scary after all. Thank you. We were joking uh, before we started about how much Tim loves to be on camera. So I was I had an extra, extra smile for that. Beautiful job, Jenna. Thank you, Gabby, for letting us share in so much of your culture and your family. I just love it's it's so great. We actually do two story meetings leading up to this this final performance, even though these these stories are still kind of like a workshop in progress. But it's just so incredible to hear uh, like all the details that come out and all these images. But every time that line about laughing in the face of danger and crying in the face of change just just hits me right here. Uh, thank you again. I love listening to these stories. It's such a like fun culmination of everything. Jenna, you are not released yet. You're going to be back here in the hot seat because uh, Jenna wrote our final story of this evening. And we're also going to welcome Chris back in a bit to read it. But before that happens, I'm very excited to, to have your show and tell to see what is in your circle for your, your three items. I can get, all right. I cheated. I put a fourth there because one's a little obvious. 10 years ago, um, I got married. So one is my wedding ring that's comprised of my mother's old, like, totally Dallas dynasty wedding ring that I had mm. to reformat. But the things that surprised me are this little tray that I got for my wedding that I, I still use because I love, I'm such a huge Downton Abbey fan and I love tea parties and all things tea and English customs. I'm so nerdy and I love to use this little tea tray and I can't even believe it. And then this wonderful painting that uh, my BFF and matron maid of honor did it for us for our wedding. I love it. And it just goes with everything in a weird way. Um, and these weird little clown mugs that my niece gave me for my birthday one year that are so creepy. The clown, you can't see it because I'm a terrible drawer, but the clown face like bursts out of the ceramic of the cup and the, the legs are the handle. So their little butts are in the air and they're just so creepy and fun. And I love them so much. And my niece is no longer with us. So I really just love those cups so, so much. So those are the things that I, um, that I love. How many of them are there just to, for, there's four. Four. So and got they're like all a little, different. Little clown gaggle. I do. And I love it. They're so oh, cute. nice. We might have to, we might have to request some pictures of that to, to yeah. share along with here. Of course. Thank you. Uh, so much fun getting to know everyone through their stories and their circles, all building toward our final story of this evening, 50, written by Jenna Strubel, and it's going to be performed for us here by Chris Crothers. 50. This year is the beginning of my 50th year. The excitement I feel about this birthday is nothing like the dread I anticipated. 50-year-old women in my family were grandmothers who chain-smoked, cackled over spades, and talked shit on their husbands. 
They lamented over children and longed for alone time. Approaching 50 myself, the cover song that is my life is at high volume. Same lyrics, but you have to listen carefully to recognize the song. A nostalgia not yet lived. When I was 16, I declared my future as an actor to which my mother quickly replied, you know what you should do with an excited sparkle in her eye, get into the secretarial pool at Pantex. They have good benefits, you know, something to fall back on. Norma Gale Chani was the product of 60s when a woman striving to be a secretary was the best you could do. In her estimation, I would never make a living as a sensitive, emotional actress. The women's liberation movement did not move my mother's focus on the need for me to attract a good husband who could take care of me. Like so many moms, she was projecting her own history. My charming grandfather transported my grandmother from poor rural Arkansas to the suburban middle class. My own father's Irish charm and tall, dark and handsome looks were not enough to elevate my mother to the same status beyond the bipolar storm we had to suffer through. When my mother discovered his own secretary was now benefiting from my mother's or from my father's look and looks and charm, they separated. I learned through her struggle that counting on a man was probably not a good idea. Still, I tried to conform to the role of the other women around me. My grandmother's Joan Crawford airs and my mother's down-home Dolly Parton magnetism. Their opinions and explosive personas did not conform to other women of their generations, but they still took care of their children their homes, and their husbands. An hourglass bleach blonde with black-lined Betty Davis eyes, hot roller curls, my mother's loud language was colorful as her personality. Everyone loved her. Being an introvert myself, I was, I was a bit embarrassed by her glow. Growing up, I thought I was different and wanted more for my life than what I perceived I had to show for them, had to show for myself, themselves. A life of servitude, childcare, beholden to family get-togethers and the occasional vacation. At age 11, I was aware I would have a different path as my size 10 made me appear older than my size four friends. Preoccupied by her own insecurity, my mother's worry about my size manifest, manifested in including me on her diets. When I gained more weight, she couldn't understand it. In response to me asking for validation, her reply was, yes, honey, you have a very pretty face. In my late 20s, I was breaking away from the picket fence cocktail hour of my grandmother and the country housewife days of my mother to run away with the circus. I was defining, defining myself as an independent, uh, independent woman who didn't need a man, damn it. In my narcissism, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I was even aware my mother had already turned 50, newfound financial freedom for my well-paid position in wardrobe with a global circus company. I proudly purchased my mother a round trip ticket to join me on tour in Spain. Living in a rural Texas trailer community, taking care of her granddaughter and escaping through soap operas, I wanted to break her out of the hell I perceived she was living in. For months, I had prepared her to try to be transcontinental like I thought I was with my scarves, my fancy cigarettes, my rudimentary language skills. Please, mom, learn at least a little bit of Spanish to be polite and order food. No, mom, they don't have enchiladas there. It's nothing like Mexico. Please, mom, don't wear stirrup pants here. It is 2002. No, mom, no one wears them here. Little did I know my mother was ahead of her time. I put aside the fear that comes with parental embarrassment and let myself be elated when she and my aunt and uncle arrived. They were on my turf now. 
my mother proceeded to greet everyone with, with full-bodied contact hugs, giving the impression Texas was a land of non-consensual body contact with an ample dose of Elizabeth Taylor white diamond perfume. After the show one evening, company members went for drinks in the heart of Sevilla. A young artist remarked how sexy my mother was. Being the protective good daughter, I said, she's not available, you horny bastard, so forget about it. To which he replied, does she know that? She seems to be enjoying herself with Andre at the bar. A charming and handsome man, Andre was flirting with my mother. I leapt up, made my way through the smoky haze of the crowded bar. Why didn't you tell me your mother was so beautiful? He said through a cloud of Dracar Noir as he looked her up and down like the ubiquitous Hemon hanging in Spanish cafe windows. I persisted, that is sweet, but she's married to a Vietnam veteran. Andre's veneers lit up the darkness. You know, Norma, I was in the Russian army. Oh yeah, my mother squealed. Mom, you're both married. Andre pleaded, come on, Jaina, we're just having some fun. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm afraid of, I said with a smile. Come on, mom. I gently drug her by the elbow back to my aunt and uncle. Excuse me, Jennifer, we, but we were just flirting, she said. I insisted, you are both married, mom. With raised eyebrows, she retorted, and just what do you think was gonna happen? Then more playful, it's been a while since a handsome man looked at me like that, okay? I relented. Okay, you're right, sorry, mom. She continued, so what about you? Are you seeing anyone? I braced and thought, here we go. Seeing my eyes roll, she put her arm around me. I just want you to be happy, sweetheart. With a sigh and a smile, I replied, I know, mom. We ventured to Ronda, a lovely historic town where we, thrilled, where, we, where we were thrilled with flamenco, lots of Jesus and Mary artwork, and enough wine and tapas to choke a matador. I showed off speaking my Paschal Spanish and ordered what I thought was the right wine and food, probably not impressing the locals as much as I imagined I was impressing my mother. I could feel her staring at me. Jennifer, I am just so proud of you. How did you come from me? At last, some pride emerged in both of us. The next day, after spending more money on herself than she ever had in her entire lifetime, my mother seemed far away. Is something wrong, mom, I asked. Oh, I just wish Larry was here. Being a single person for most of my life, her attachment broke my little heart and made me wonder why I didn't feel the same. Was something broken inside of her for being free of marital confinement and, and liberated in these European streets? Or was something broken within me because I preferred to be alone? The ennui was broken when we went in search for the perfect Spanish shoe. I was helping my aunt when I heard my mother's elevated voice say, I can't understand you, sir. I could hear some mumbled Spanish and then more of an audible aside from my mother, son of a bitch. Then, uh, uh, then emphatic and with more volume, with more volume, I cannot understand you. She called for my uncle, Daniel, can you come and help me? Thank God for an empty store. This was like a bad comic sketch that I did not want to be in. Jesus, mom, be quiet, I said, mortified. Lo siento, senor. I apologized to the clerk who was visibly irritated. We were not blending in. Yelling is not going to help him understand you. Daniel doesn't speak Spanish. Why didn't you just ask me for help? She whirled around. Do not lecture me, Jennifer. I am your mother. I dropped the pretense. Dang, mom, sorry. Time seems slow in these tense moments of bagging up our purchases, and we left the store. 
Later that night, which was to be our last, I asked my mother if she had a good time during this adventure. Mostly, she said uncharacteristically soft. I prodded, what does that mean, I asked. You embarrassed me in that store, her hurt creeping out. I laughed, mom, you embarrassed me in that store. She dug in. No, you embarrassed me and you made me feel stupid. You put on airs, Jennifer, just like your grandmother. I was shocked. All this time I had worried about my mother's loud Texas laugh and stir up tights when in reality, I was so caught up in impressing her that I was being a stuck up jackass who just could not let her be herself. Seemingly out of nowhere, she brought up my weight. Mom, you put me on my first diet at age 11. I have struggled with my weight my entire, my whole dang life. Maybe I won't ever be skinny. I am so freaking insecure about it and it's all your damn fault. We were both in tears and we must've been loud because my aunt came to check on us, prompting us to finish our fight in heated whispered tones. This fight was not like us. We had not actually fought since I was a teenager. In spite of our differences, she was my loud, embarrassing best friend. I loved her dearly. And here we were breaking each other's hearts on her European adventure. A year later, she sent me a handwritten apology letter on steno paper about being a horrible mother. Before I even finished the letter, I was calling long distance to tell her that whatever mistakes she made, she was forgiven and that I needed to own my own issues with weight. It was my turn to apologize for her for working so hard to impress her on that trip that I lost myself. She said she loved me for giving her that trip and for being who I was. She just wanted me to be happy. Two years later, she and I were strolling in the San Antonio Riverwalk, sipping margaritas and eating her favorite enchiladas, all appropriate distractions to cover the real reason we were there. I'd come back to Texas to take care of her after hearing that she had, had, st uh, she had stage four cancer. It was in the taxi ride to the experimental doctor that I realized we were closer to the end and I was pissed about it. Four weeks later, she fell onto the floor and all we could do was watch Judy Garland's biography while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. When hospice rather than hospital became our destination, I put my arm around her while she leaned her head on my shoulder and cried. A few days later, I had one last opportunity to apologize to her for everything. She forgave me like I forgave her. And two days later at the age of 56, she was gone. After her last breath, all I could do was be grateful. It was the weirdest thing. The prayers I sent out that day were, thank you for this opportunity to be with her. Thank you for giving me a job that will allow me to take care for her. Thank you for making her illness brief so that she didn't have to suffer. Thank you for Spain. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for her loud laugh and foul mouth that will live on side of me, that will live inside of me. <clears throat> I can't be certain, but I'm pretty sure as I approach 50 in a few months that I'm not what my mother imagined I would be at this age. <clears throat> a queer woman married to a non-binary spouse with no kids, a breadwinning circus school executive who craves more alone time and still struggles with her weight. This is also the 15th year since my mother, Norma, queen of the full body huggers, has hugged me. And as I approach this milestone, I don't feel the dread women often do of turning into their mothers. When grief embraces me in the more quiet mornings of brief solitude while drinking coffee, I surrender to the surprising excitement of being a little more like her 
and feeling closer to her in ways I did not imagine. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.